You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. It's so great to be together today. Great worship, and I uh, always love seeing Pastor Jeremy up here. Just tell Pastor Jeremy how much you appreciate him. He's doing such a great job at Bayshore. And Pastor Jeff, who is our pastoral care guy, he is having a big birthday tomorrow, so give Pastor Jeff a big uh, hug as well when you see him. So, Hey, I'm really excited about next Sunday. Uh, my dad's going to be here. If you've never met my dad, my dad is going to be here, and my two sons, and uh, I'm going to be interviewing my sons about uh, fatherhood and their experience in our household. And uh, we're just going to have a real honest conversation about fatherhood next Sunday. So we're really excited about that and um, especially excited for my dad to be here who is my hero and I'm looking forward to uh, this whole weekend. So make sure you invite somebody. And uh, uh, those speakers are amazing, by the way. I was at my son's house yesterday and he's got those speakers in his uh, living room. And I said, why does your sound bar sound so much better than mine? And he said, he pointed to these speakers. So you want to make sure that you're here for that. Well, we're in a series, uh, this is part six, I think, on the book of First Thessalonians, we call this Survivor. The series is called Survivor because this is a very young church, less than a year old, and they're facing a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulty, and Paul is writing these letters to just help them understand the faith better and help them to be strong as they deal with persecution, difficulty. It was hard times that they were living in, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on them, and so he wanted to write to them to give them some encouragement. And so in the letter, uh, one of the features of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is one of the big ideas in the letter is Paul evidently, when he was with them, he talked to them about the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And to be honest with you, uh, we don't, haven't heard a lot about that in recent years. And uh, I was saying last week how since COVID, there's been a new interest in eschatology, which is the end of the world and all of that. People are more interested in that than they have been in a long time. And so uh, when we get into these books, First and Second Thessalonians, evidently this was a key part of what Paul talked about to the Thessalonians, And it was uh, something that they asked questions about, and they were waiting for the Lord to come. They were waiting for the Lord to come. And it uh, created some issues and some problems. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed as I've studied this whole thing about the second coming of Christ in First and Second Thessalonians and looked at it in light of the New Testament, how they looked at the second coming. They looked at it differently than, than we do. You know, uh, in my lifetime, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the church, and, and some of you were church kids, and you grew up when the revivalists came through, and they preached on the second coming, and sometimes they had those gigantic charts and pictures, and this is going to happen a certain time, and, you know, the Antichrist is coming, and you got the mark of the beast, and I remember as a kid being afraid I'd miss the rapture, and I always look for little kids, you know, make sure there's any kids around. You know, I thought the Lord would always take little kids, and uh, if I found a little kid, I thought I was all right, you know. But uh, I grew up in that world, uh, hearing a lot about that. And then the church basically went through a season of, a long season of relevant teaching. We teach on what's practical, helping your marriage, how to deal with stress, how to deal with fear. And so that's all the themes that our modern churches talk about. 
But, you know, when you think about the chaos in our world, and maybe you're disillusioned with politics, maybe you're disillusioned with all the stuff you see in the world, the second coming is important because it really speaks to God's overarching plan for this planet. Because it's really easy to get discouraged thinking that, you know, things are just bad and they're going to get worse and nobody has the answer. But biblical history is linear, and it moves toward a grand conclusion. And uh, we're not, you know, history is just not repeating itself over and over again and same thing happening over and over again. But history is moving toward a conclusion where the Lord will come. And although our politicians and the governments of the world and the United Nations, uh, you know, and back, I remember at World War I, when I started World War I, Woodrow Wilson, you know, started the League of Nations. And World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And uh, the Great War, the war to end all wars. And then at the end of that, Woodrow Wilson, you know, uh, created the League of Nations. And, of course, America didn't even join it for political reasons. But, you know, the world was trying to bring peace on this earth. And as far as I can tell, there's more stress, there's more conflict, there's more, uh, obviously, wars and rumors of wars that Matthew 24 talks about. So it's easy to get discouraged. And the reason the second coming is important is because it points to history is going somewhere and things aren't always going to be this way. That the Lord is coming with a mighty army and he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. And, and I said last week, which was maybe a little controversial to you if you haven't, you know, if you've been the traditional uh, person that studied, you know, Hal Lindsey and, you know, you got the Lord coming and you got, he's going to come, he's going to take everybody away, there's going to be a tribulation period, and then at the end he's going to come back again. I call that the yo-yo theory. He comes once, he comes again. I really have trouble seeing that in Scripture. But what I do believe is that when the Lord comes, he's not taking us away, but he's going to bring us back with him to this earth, to reign on this earth, to establish a, a government and a kingdom that reflects his glory. So, there's a lot that can be said about eschatology, and there's a lot of questions that all of us have about that, and it's not an easy subject, but I think it does speak to hope, that there is hope for this world, and there is incredible need for hope today, and that's why it's important. Well, let me, uh, let me, let me talk a little bit about how the early church looked, about, looked at the second coming. Uh, we, we get all tired up in... Uh, is there going to be pre-tribulation rapture? Is it going to be a mid-tribulation rapture where the Lord comes before this terrible time of the tribulation? Is it going to come in the middle? Is it going to come at the end? When is the Antichrist going to show up? Or has the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist always been in the world? All that stuff. All those questions. But that was not the fixation of the early church. The fixation of the early church was the Lord coming himself. They were looking forward to seeing Jesus because they loved Jesus so deeply and so passionately that they were dreaming and thinking of the Lord coming, and they could not wait to see him because they loved him. We don't think about the second coming that way. We think about it like we're getting out of here, uh, you know, we're think, or we think about the charts and how's it going to happen, and, you know, people have got all these opinions. But the early church, they weren't tied up in all of that. They were wrapped up in Jesus. They loved Jesus so much that they wanted to see him. A few weeks ago, my wife Karen went on vacation with her sister Barbara. They go away once a year, have a little vacation at the beach, and it's a, it's a, it's a vacation. Karen enjoys it. I get to stay home and, you know, burp and scratch my belly, that kind of thing. 
and uh, eat whatever I want to, watch whatever I want to. And so she's gone for seven days at the beach, and, you know, I'm watching, uh, you know, documentaries and sports, and the, 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 uh, the dishes in the sink are building up. And, but, I, you know, this last year, you know, the longer she was gone, the more I missed her. And I was just like, man, it's just, it's, you know, I, I just was missing her, and I wanted to see her. And I couldn't wait for her to get home. And uh, I'd call her every day, and we'd talk a little bit. And she says, how's the kitchen look? I said, well, I hope you're having a good time. I really hope everything's going good for you. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad you're having good weather and all that. But she finally told me when she was coming, and I knew the ballpark when she was coming. So I, I got everything cleaned up 20 minutes before she got there. Got everything looking good. <laughs> but you know what? I could not wait to see her. And when I heard the garage door go up and when she came in the house, boy, I was there and I, I just hugged her and I just was so excited that she was home. That was the spirit of the early church with Jesus coming. They loved him so much they wanted to see him. And I didn't, you know, my problem, you know, my thing with Karen coming back from the beach vacation was, was not how she came home. It wasn't the route. It wasn't like, well, you know, I wonder if she's going to take, you know, go down Ocean Highway and turn on Route 54 and go through Fenwick Island, go through Selbyville, then out on 113, then head up toward Millsboro. Or is she going to go, you know, maybe to Route 26 to Bethany, then come to Millsboro that way. Or maybe she's going to go all the way to Rehoboth. I wasn't concerned about the route and what she took to get home. I was just looking forward to her coming home. And so we want to be a people in our day that in, we, in, we, we have greater passion and greater love for Jesus, so we're looking forward to him coming. Let me read you a couple of scriptures that help us with this. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed, who have longed for his appearing. The early church was longing for the appearing of Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus. They were longing for it. The word long there, the, the word longing in the Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek, it, it, it means to love, to love his appearing. And, and here's the thing about what we need to think about when we think about the second coming. If we're indifferent to the second coming, then we're really not looking forward to his coming. It's an indication of where our heart is spiritually. And when we have this passion for Jesus we just want to see him because we love him so much Jesus was so real to the church of Thessalonians as they heard Paul who experienced the resurrection of Jesus who met the resurrected Christ as he talked and preached about Jesus and the excitement on his face and the joy of the Lord as he had seen the risen Lord they all fell in love with Jesus and they were following Jesus so they were longing for him to come back now, I don't know if that would describe any of us today, that we're longing for his coming. But I believe that God is going to create in our generation pockets of people 
that long for the coming of Jesus because they love Jesus so much that they can't wait to see him. I could not wait to Karen, to, until Karen got home. It did modify my behavior, cleaning up the chick, uh, kitchen and all that. All that was part of it. But I could not wait to see her. So when you think about how you look at the second coming and how our church looks at the second coming, in this crazy world we live in with wars and rumors of wars and dysfunctional governments that do not seem to have the answer to anything, it is good to know that there is a king coming that will put this world in order and we can walk in our love relationship with him to a greater level. Here's what it says also in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope, now, the word hope there is the word elpis in the Greek, and it means to anticipate with pleasure. To anticipate with pleasure. The early church was anticipating with pleasure the coming of the Lord. They could not wait to see the Lord. Also, all who have this hope in, them, in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And so one of the things that happens when the Lord returns and when the Lord comes back John writes, you know, we're children of God, and what we are has not yet been made known. Now, everybody here, here's one of the things that I look forward to when I think about the coming of Jesus. I look forward to being transformed into the perfect image of Jesus. Because here's the thing about me. I'm growing in the Lord a little bit every year. I'm getting better. Things that I, you know have been habits and patterns in my life are falling off as the Holy Spirit does work in my life. But as I look at my life, I'm yet to be completed. Now, let me ask you here this morning, is there anybody here that you're not quite like there yet? You've still got stuff going on in your life. I think that's pretty much everybody. We've got a few liars in the group that are working with lying issues. <laughs> but we got, he says, dear friends, we, now we are the children of God. You know what a child is? A child is somebody that's growing progressively, and I'm growing progressively. If you put your faith in Jesus, and maybe you're a recent person that's been baptized at Bayshore, and you put your faith in Jesus, you're growing progressively. You're like a child. You're growing a little bit every year, and you're still not perfect. And that's why people in the world, they, can't, they don't get it. They expect Christians to be perfect. Well, that's not the, that's not the plan. The plan is we're not perfect yet. We're being changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll keep being changed until the day that he comes. And we'll see him as he is. And as we see him as he is, we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. So I'll keep changing and becoming more and more like Jesus until the day that Jesus comes. And one of the reasons I'm looking forward to Jesus is because when his coming, when he comes, all the stuff that I still haven't got worked out is going to finally be worked out. Our first house that Karen and I lived in, uh, we lived in a little house on Carrie's Camp, Camp Road for 15 years, a little rancher. We lived there as we were raising our boys. And uh, Karen had this thing. We, the boys were like, you know, four and five when we moved in there, just little, little tots. And uh, in, the, in the vestibule coming to the house, Karen had a wall where she had them stand against the wall every year. 
and she would draw a line on the top of their head on their birthday. And then the next year, they would line up on that same wall, and she'd draw another line. And you could look at that wall, and you could see their growth, how they were growing. And it was a really, really sad day when we finally moved out of that house, and I looked at that wall, and I saw the lines on the wall, and I could recognize the growth of my kids. The object of the Christian life is for us to keep growing, not to get saved and just wait to go to heaven, which is a total misreading of what the New Testament is all about. We're not just to get saved to go to heaven. We're to keep being made more and more and more like Jesus. And when he comes, we'll see him as he is. And at that moment, we'll be like him. So that's one of the reasons we look forward to that. And, and it says, all that have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So let's talk about a little bit about how do we wait or waiting for the coming of the Lord. The Lord's coming. We talked last week, it's been 2,000 years, so uh, hard to sell that idea. You know, it's been 2,000 years. And we talked about last week how, you know, that when there is a big event on God's redemptive calendar, there is always a long runway to that, to that event being fulfilled. And we also talked about how it says in 1 Peter that, um, that the delay in the coming of the Lord, Peter says, is a sign of God's mercy. That he, this is an age of grace. This is an age of opportunity where we can embrace and, and follow the Lord. So what are we to do while we are waiting? Now, there's two kinds of waiting. There's passive waiting and there's active waiting. Passive waiting and active waiting. One of the problems in the church of Thessalonica is that they were, some of them were passively waiting, meaning that they had quit their jobs, that they were not responsible, that they were just waiting for Jesus to come, sitting in their lazy boy chair waiting for Jesus to come. And when you read the second book of Thessalonica, Thessalonians, you find that he's warning them to go to work, uh, there's like six scriptures about idleness, that they're idle, that they're not being active. And uh, so this is a common thing. Sometimes when people think about the coming of the Lord, you go to this point where there's this passive waiting where we just, we're not, we're, we're not industrious. We're not doing what we need to be doing. And so that was a problem. And that's one of the things that Paul had to correct with them. They were waiting for the Lord to come. They had the right heart, but in the midst of that, they had become lazy and irresponsible and they weren't going to work now I don't know if you know this but back in uh, 1844 in the state of Massachusetts in 1844 there was a guy by the name of William Miller who predicted that Jesus was going to come on October 22nd 1844 so he had such a persuasive ministry that uh, thousands of people believed what he was saying. And he had kind of worked through the, uh, the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 8. And he saw this thing with the cleansing of the sanctuary that, that that meant that the Lord was coming back. And he had deciphered all these numbers to come up that Jesus was going to come back on October 22nd, 1844. Now, here's the thing about the dating of the second coming of the Lord. You know, the Lord said, I don't, you know, no man knows the day or the hour. And uh, and, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says about dates, I'm not going to write you about dates because you know, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you know that the Lord is coming like a thief. 
He's coming like a thief. And then he says, it's like a woman in labor. That's when the Lord is going to come. Now, when you think about that, uh, a woman in labor, you never know when she's going to go in labor. And some people have taken the idea of the thief rapture, or the Lord coming as a thief, is that he comes secretly to get his church, and he takes them away and hides them in heaven. And then, after the tribulation period, he brings them back. Now, the point of the thief metaphor is not that, that there's, it's not that the Lord's coming secretly. It's the Lord is coming when you don't know when he's coming. So if somebody says he's coming on October 22nd, 1844, what you do know is you don't know when the Lord's coming, but you know he's not coming that day. <laughs> That's the only time you can be absolutely sure. That's when he's not coming. Now what happened to William Miller is that William Miller had all of these followers, tens of thousands of followers in Massachusetts, 1844. This is pre-Civil War. And he said the Lord was coming on October 22nd. And about that time, there was a comet that passed over the skies of Massachusetts, and more people got on board. So on October 22nd, 1844, people had already quit their jobs. They'd already given away all their possessions, and they donned white robes, and they got on top of hills and mountains and waited for the Lord to come. And he didn't come. So here's what always happens. So a whole bunch of people got disillusioned with William Miller. Miller. His, uh, his CD sales went way down, you know, after that. Uh, but there were a group of people that said he was right, but it didn't happen the way he thought it was going to happen. That in heaven, uh, on that day, the Lord cleansed the, the heavenly sanctuary, and it begun the time when he was going to bring judgment on the earth. And so that group was called... William Miller called the Lord's coming the advent, the advent. So there was this, uh, a group that started called the Seventh-day Adventist. They started uh, in 1844 as William Miller had made that false prediction, and they spiritualized it, and then that's how they got started. So here's the thing about the coming of the Lord. We don't know when the Lord's coming, but... Passive waiting is never God's plan. Passive waiting is never God's plan. God wants us to be passionately excited about seeing Jesus, waiting for Jesus to come, uh, knowing that we don't live in disillusionment and hope, regardless of what we see on the news, regardless of what we see happening in the world. Jesus said there's going to be famines, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, and all these things must be happening before I come. So don't get disillusioned when you see the world in disarray because the world is in disarray and the world will be in disarray and there will be nobody that can solve the problems until King Jesus comes in his glory with a rod of iron and will rule on this earth. And I'm not a fatalist because I believe at the end of the day there, our king is coming, we're going to reign with him and this planet is not going to be destroyed by a bunch of crazy people. So passive waiting is not what we're supposed to do. Uh, we're supposed to be active in, in waiting. And so here's, uh, here's a couple of scriptures. Let me give you some scriptures of what we're supposed to do. This is in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe. Here it is. I'll find it here in a second. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Here's what, 
here's what we're supposed to be doing. So passive waiting and active waiting. So when, when I was in high school, um, me and my buddy Sammy Fisher said, you know what? We're pretty sure Jesus is coming before we graduate from high school. Pretty sure of it. And, um, you know, he was hippie. I was a hippie. You have to use your imagination there. I had long hair. And, uh, and we're pretty sure Jesus is coming before we graduate from high school. And, uh, man, we thought it was going to happen. So consequently, I didn't see the need to study algebra. <laughs> you know, really, if Jesus is coming, I don't think you're going to need algebra. So I was awful in algebra. I mean, why do algebra homework? Jesus is coming before this is all over with. That turned out to be a real problem when I got into college, I'll tell you that. So waiting, we're to actively wait. Uh, and, and when you think about the, uh, the parable of the talents in, in uh, Matthew 25, this is a great, I don't know if you know, think about this, where Matthew, where the parable of the talents is in Scripture. Matthew 24 is where Jesus talks about, you know, wars and, wars and rumors of wars and the Son of Man coming like the lightning in heaven, visible in the sky. When Jesus comes, it will be a visible coming, not a secret, spiritual, mystical coming. Just the way he went, he ascended in Acts chapter 1, he'll come physically. And so Jesus talks in Matthew 24 about the coming of Jesus. And then when you get to Matthew 25, you have the parable of the ten virgins, virgins that five of them didn't have oil. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is to always be ready. To always be in right relationship with the Lord. That's the point of the parable of the, of, the, of the virgins. It doesn't, you know, people take that parable and they, well, the lamps mean this and the oil means the Holy Spirit and all that. Parables have, most parables have one point. And it's like a one punchline. And the punchline is, you don't know when he's coming, so be ready. You don't know when he's coming, so be ready. And so when you think about uh, the Lord's been teaching about his coming through the parable of the, uh, the, the, the ten virgins, Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, he's coming. And then he tells this story in this context. It's like a man that went away for a long time. And to one person he gave five bags of gold, and to another he gave two bags of gold, and to another man he gave one bag of gold. And the guy that had five bags of gold, while the master is away, is diligently investing that money, those bags of gold, and he makes five more. So while he's waiting for the master to return, he's incredibly productive, increasing what he's been given. And the man with two bags of gold, he's increased that to two more bags of gold. But the one man who had the one bag of gold, and you say, well, that's not very much. You know, one, one talent is what the other translations say. And some people have said one talent is equivalent to 20 years' wages. Now, there's a lot of debate about what, how much that's really worth. But he wasn't given a few pennies. Everybody on this planet, while we wait for Jesus to come, we, we have, we have a, an incredible opportunity to do something good. So that's why I maybe rustled, ruffled some feathers last week that I said, I'm not sure anybody in the early church just retired and went on sandals vacations. <laughs> now, thank God for sandals vacations, and if you've been on one of those, you know it's a little taste of heaven. 
But your life cannot be about that. You can't bury your opportunities. We have people every, every week that come here that are retired that serve in our food pantry. There's a man in our children's ministry right now named Paul Owens. I went to lunch with Paul about a year ago, and he's a retired Methodist minister from Clayton, Delaware. And Paul said, you know, hey, I love the church. I've been in the church for two years. And I just, I just love Bayshore. I think it's wonderful. And he said, I want to do something. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is a retired pastor. We can, he can help Pastor Jeff, all these stuff he can do. He said, I want to work with kids. I, I knew that was the Holy Spirit. When anybody says they want to work with kids, we know that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I said, Paul, is that, is that right? What do you want to do? Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to work with kids. So he's over there right now in his sunset years. He's taking his opportunity. He's taking the time he has, and he's serving the Lord. He's serving Jesus. He's helping little kids. He said, D.L. Moody said, if you can spend your life doing anything, help kids. Now, that's why I love our online family. I love our online family, but let me say this to you. If you are an online listener, you have to find a way to serve the Lord. You cannot just sit on your couch and watch sermons. You've got to get involved in the local church in some way. If you are an online listener, you've got to get involved in a small group. You've got to find a where to, uh, an area to serve because the kingdom of God is not a bleacher situation. It's a, it's a situation where we roll up our sleeves and we serve the Lord because while we're waiting for the Lord to come, we need to be occupying and doing the Lord's work. Amen. So passive waiting versus active waiting. So, um, so I'm, just, I'm just excited about that. I mean, I just, you know, it's just you've got to find your mission. What is the Lord calling you to do? Be an active waiter and, and be responsible. Go to school. Go to graduate school. I planted two weeping willow trees the other day. I'm planting trees. I'm planning for the future. I'm, I'm invested in stocks, and I'm not looking much right now, but I'm believing. <laughs> you plan for the future. You wait actively, but your heart longs to see Jesus. Here's what Here's what Paul said to them. Finally, I get to a verse in 1 Thessalonians, which is the series. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and we don't have but a few minutes here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul is saying, while you're waiting for the Lord to come, do your job. Uh, he says in 2 Thessalonians, because evidently some people quit, they weren't working, they were waiting for Jesus to come. And he said, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So it's all in the context of how they misinterpreted the second coming of the Lord. But it's noticing to me that what he talks to them about doing while they're waiting for Jesus to come is to love one another. Is to love one another. So we want to be ready for Jesus to come. We, we love him. Here's one of the things we need to think about. 
And, and, and me being prepared for Jesus to come every day while I'm planting my weeping willow trees, while I'm making my investments, while I'm going to school, while I'm investing in my future, I want to make sure that my heart is full of love toward other people because when Jesus comes, you don't want to have anger in your heart toward another person because, you know, it's, it, you know Jesus has this way of seeing not simply how you look on the outside, but 1 John says if you hate somebody, if you hate somebody, the love of God is not in you. How can a person be born of God, John says, and hate another person? So it's interesting how practical Paul becomes here. He said as you're waiting for the Lord to come, make sure you love each other and do so more and more and more. So when I'm thinking about Jesus coming... I want to make sure that there's no blemish in my heart, no hatred in my heart toward another person. And if you live on this planet long enough, somebody in your family or somebody that you work with is going to wrong you. Somebody's going to not meet your expectations and you're going to get hurt. And you can let that hatred and unforgiveness get in your heart. And you never want to have hatred and unforgiveness in your heart while you're waiting for Jesus to come. Paul talks to them about loving each other as they're waiting for Jesus to come. Now, I was at the airport a while back. Karen and I were flying somewhere, and, you know, you go through the, the TSA thing, and, you, you know, you strip down into your boxer shorts, and you're there, and you're, you're, you're going through, and, you know, you got to put your laptop out and all that, and I'm going through the little arch thing where you put your hands up, you do the charismatic thing, you do it, and you raise your hands, and, and the little thing goes around you. And it went off. And, boy, you hate that. You know, you're in trouble. They, they went off, and they throw you against the wall, and they, they frisk you and all that. But I had left my belt on. And my belt caused the sensor to go off. And just think, if, if there is a sensor, as we wait for the Lord to come, that we walk through, that detects hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness in our heart, Paul is saying before the Lord comes, make sure that you love each other more and more and more. So that means people in your family. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had conflict with anybody in your family, a sibling, a brother, a sister, a cousin. But you know, if you're murdered, the first people they look at is your family. How many have ever had trouble with a family member or you know somebody had trouble with a family member? We all have that. So you have to, you know, I kneel down on my, my, by my bed every night and I pray the Lord's Prayer. I say, Lord, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your will is being done in my life, Lord. Even things I can't control, it's being done. People that are, you know, hurt me. Your will being done. Your kingdom, you're working in my life. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive me my debts. Forgive me the debts of my thoughts that aren't pleasing to you. My heart and my actions, my hands and my eyes. I confess my debts to you as I forgive my debtors. And I end every day. Every day, taking my belt off so I, can't, I can walk through the sensor 
And if the Lord comes, I put love in my heart toward other people. Now, that doesn't mean you go hang around people that are abusive and are dysfunctional. You don't, you don't go to parties with people like that, but you love them from a distance. But you purify your heart because James says this, James says in James 3, 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the likeness of God. He's talking about the conflict of loving God but hating somebody else in your heart. You have to forgive people that have hurt you. Now, there's an interesting thing. I don't know if you know much about Babe Ruth, but Babe Ruth, um, he was you know, a home run king. And, and in 1923, the Yankee Stadium, the brand-new Yankee Stadium, was, was uh, completed. And the, the Yankees had their first game in uh, the uh, new Yankee Stadium. And Babe Ruth said to the press, he said, I would give a year of my life, a year of my life if I could hit a home run on the first day in this stadium. And Babe Ruth hit a home run out of Yankee Stadium in 1923, April 1923. And Babe Ruth signed a lot of baseballs that, uh, that you know, he, he hit home runs with. He signed a lot of baseballs. But he only signed seven bats that he hit home runs with. And for many years, there was a missing bat. They knew where six bats were, but one of the bats was missing. This is that seventh bat. No, it's not. I got this. Uh, Joel got this on Amazon Prime, and he gave it to me. So that's uh... But the man that had the bat that hit the original home run was dying. He was a businessman. And he didn't have any family. And there was this nurse by the name of Marcia that uh, had taken care of him. And he said to her before he died, he said, I don't have anyone to leave my treasures to or my wealth to, and I want to give you this bat. So he gave this woman, Marcia, this bat, his, uh, the bat that Babe Ruth hit his first home run with, one of the seven bats. And so she didn't know what it was. And she thought, well, this is great. I'd like to have more money, but this is wonderful. And she went home and put it under her bed. And she left it under her bed for 18 years until she retired of nursing. When she retired of nursing, she, uh, she wanted to open a restaurant. And she thought, I wonder if that old bat is worth anything. So she took that, that bat down to a memorabilia dealer. And he looked at the bat. And he thought to himself, is this the missing bat? And sure enough, it was the missing bat. And it went to auction. And 18 years after she was given the bat, she stuck it under, the, under her bed. It was covered with dust. The missing Babe Ruth bat went for $1.3 million. She was able to open a pretty good restaurant. <laughs> she also had used some of the money to help kids. And the thing about what made the bat so valuable is the bat had Babe Ruth's name signed on the bat. And when you think about the people that have hurt you, the people that have wounded you, the people that you have trouble loving, just remember this. Those people are made in the image of God. People that don't 
agree with you politically that I don't agree with politically, I have to say, Lord, you know, you made them in your image. And if there was one person left on this planet, you would have died for that person. And so I pray for them. I may not agree with them, whatever, but I pray and I have to look at them as someone that's made in the image of God, someone that has Babe Ruth's signature on their heart made in the image of God. The person that we struggle with the most, the persons that have gotten in our heart in a negative way, as dysfunctional and mean or whatever they've done to us as they are, those persons are made in the image of God. And the Lord constantly reminds me when I have trouble with somebody and I put them on my little list. The Lord reminds me that anybody on that list, he loves just as much as he loves me because they're made in his image and Christ died for them. So as we wait for the Lord to come and we think about the coming of the Lord, we're active, we're proactive, we do everything the Lord has called us to do. But Paul said, while you wait, make sure you love each other. Make sure you love each other. So if if you and I want to be ready for the Lord to come at this moment, the first thing we do is, Lord, cleanse my heart, purify my heart of anything in my heart that doesn't love another person the way you love that person. Would you lift your hands and let the Holy Spirit just speak to you as you think about the coming of the Lord and you being ready for the Lord and, and these times of what the Lord's doing in our life. And Father, I just thank you for the people that are here today. They're sitting in this building. They're sitting in Fenwick Island right now. They're sitting there. They are, they're engaged in your church family. They're serving. Lord, we pray that you'll just cause us to be good stewards of the seasons that we have as we wait for your coming. We ask you, Lord, to bless us. We ask you, Lord, to to use us. And right now, as our hands are lifted up, we just, we surrender. We surrender people in our hearts that have been difficult to us. So just lift your hands. Say, Lord, I, I empty my heart of anger. The Bible says to lift up holy hands without wrath and anger. So when you lift up hands, you get rid of all the anger in your heart toward other people. So we lift up our hands, Lord. We forgive our enemies. We forgive those that have not treated us fairly. And Lord, as we wait for you to come, we're light on our feet, not weighed down with bitterness and unforgiveness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.